According to Matador, the 90s are like in now, and the kids want to know about the 90s. That's like, so I can't believe that's true really any more than... Uh, well, I think they want little kids to be making it, though, the 90s yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I think too. Yeah. They have like this guy, Car Seat Headrest, and he's into the 90s, and he's... And Kurt Violin, Kurt likes our bands, and you know, like yeah. What's up? This is Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the Talkhouse Music Podcast. Here at the Talkhouse, we pair notable musicians for thoughtful, unmoderated conversations and release new talks each week. Regular listeners will have caught recent episodes like the replacements Tommy Stinson with the MC5's Wayne Kramer, or the Flaming Lips Wayne Coyne in conversation with legendary hip-hop producer Prince Paul. Check out these and all of our past episodes and subscribe to get new ones on Stitcher or iTunes. Today's guests are two indie rock veterans, Stephen Malkmus of Pavement, and of course, Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks, and Emil Amos, drummer for Ohm and Grails, and the main man of Holy Sons, who dropped their newest LP in the garden last year. During the conversation, Amos draws out Malkmus's story, from his early music fandom in Stockton, California, to college in Virginia, to the ups and downs of being a 90s indie guitar god in Pavement and beyond. And their chat takes in a lot more, too, Venturing out of their DIY comfort zones to work with big-name producers, Elliot Smith's love of fine recording gear, and his studio size miscalculation, Silverjew's David Berman being obsessed with The Cure long before he took up weirdo country music, and artists they love and artists they don't much care for, including their thoughts on Operation Ivy, Dinosaur Jr., The Meat Puppets, Graham Parsons, B.B. King, Kurt Vile, and loads more. Check it out. So you were saying the other night something about how when Minor Threat came out, you were out on the West Coast and it just didn't quite get over there for yeah. a while. Not to our town, like in 82 and up to 84. I mean, there might have been people with better tastes, but we were kind of jokey in our punk. It was just, if it was fast and aggressive and a little sarcastic, like I guess... The Dead Kennedys were the kind of uh, kind of the f- first band that you could really like them when you were in sixth or seventh grade because they were so jokey and kind of um, but offensive, smart and politically smart seemingly and, right, yeah, and whatever. good players with like well-produced albums and stuff. Um, so it started with them, and then so then Flipper was a band that was like. The opposite in some ways, but also in many ways alike, in that they were uh, ironic and uh, rude. And so those are my favorite regional bands. And this band called Tales of Terror Live was a band from Sacramento that I was in a punk band called Straw Dogs. And we had our first shows in Sacramento. And we had the open for, we were like first and then Tales of Terror. And we wanted to be better than Tales of Terror. Like in our minds, we were, we were like, 
more um, pure. Like there was something less uh, showmanship about us. And but this band Tales of Terror. I mean, they were doing like backflips off the stage, and they just there was a little like Guns and Roses in them or something, or what you imagine if Guns and Roses jumped around a lot. They looked a little voodoo-y and stuff, but they were just like miles ahead in their performance. And <laughs> and you still lived in Stockton. Yeah, that was when that band was going on. But So that those three, and then the West Coast, the Circle Jerks played in town. Black Flag came through. Um, but in Sacramento, all the bands came. I mean, I saw GBH, Battle Surfers, uh, Discharge, the Toxic Reasons, and MDC, and Good and Bad. You know, I saw it all. <laughs> in your mind, were you like thinking you'd probably migrate to San Francisco and, and go into punk music as a kid? Uh, no, I thought, I think I knew I was going to go to college. I was too. I was gonna leave. I mean, I I was I wouldn't call myself a poser, but I was uh, I was growing out of. I wasn't gonna be punk for life because also in our town there was drugs and the the heroin and there was an older generation of punk guys. This band called the Authorities, which their singles on like Killed by Death. It's well well regarded and it's a great single but they were like 21 when we were 16 and they uh they liked bands like the damned and um unfortunately johnny thunders but so these older guys all got into shooting dope and then some of the younger people in in our scene followed them and so they either never left stockton or Couple of the older guys OD'd. None, none of my friends did, luckily. But you know, it, you can't really recover from that unscarred. Um, so I was kind of always like, I got to get out of here. This is not going anywhere. And in the San Francisco punk scene was dark, and there was uh, the East Bay with like Green Day and Operation Ivy. That's a different story. But I also didn't like that music, so <laughs> that made it hard, you know, because I liked crime and uh code of honor more and, and flipper than than those like bands with good values <laughs> so when you went off to college then were you recording the early stuff on like summer yeah. breaks yeah pretty much christmas summer breaks that was it was after college i skipped college making music i was just a fan and that's when i've heard more about i knew about like sonic youth in high school and not, you know, Mud Honey hadn't happened yet, or maybe Big Black, I knew about that, but it wasn't my thing. I was into punk and then like more like Violent Femmes and Echo and the Bunny Men and like R.E.M. or something. And a little bit of, well, Van Halen and uh, Rush and leftover things from atavistic leftovers from youth, Devo. So yeah, that's when for those four years were when pavement could have happened because that's when you know we heard about started learning about indie and and Can and and Faust and Wire like Wire was a huge band there. Everyone loved Wire and and 
and I, you know, I never heard of fucking wire in Stockton. Just didn't know about that. Sex Pistols, yes, but not wire. So you hit college in Virginia, right? And you're like, you're a West Coast kid. Do you feel displaced at all on the East Coast? Not so much because uh, that place is, it was in Charlottesville. It's like a bubble of, uh, there's some kind of, fraternity southern boys that I didn't relate to but they just go about their business they don't really hassle hassle you if you're not a either a hot girl or um they just leave you alone you know they're doing their rituals and going to football games and there's outsiders there's like northern people coming there my friend David from Texas um but you did four whole yeah. years. Did Dave Berman and Bob do that too? Yeah, they're a year younger than me. And there was a good music scene there, it turns out. Um, not only did all the bands come through town, the SST bands and the, you know, the replacements, those type, any kind of college rock would come. There was also like in, I mean, probably in your town too, I'm not even talking about like, all the cultural music that happened too. There was like Sun Ra played, Cecil Taylor, um, Art Ensemble of Chicago. I mean, that a lot of things came there that were eye-opening and influenced me, you know, that was weirder stuff. You're talking about to Virginia. Yeah, to yeah. Charlottesville. Because there was like, they were more like sponsored gigs of the school, but there was a, a good jazz scene there for that. And some blues a lot of blues artists, John Lee Hooker always coming there, and uh, Hound Dog Taylor, and I saw a lot, lot of blues shows that were really fun and good. And BB King even played in the, um, in like this big outdoor thing for like the frat kids. That wasn't so great, but you know he's just he's such a nice guy. He's a showman, you know. He just played his hits for them. Um, you remind me a little bit of him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Nice guy. So once you're in Virginia, I'm guessing you like retroactively learned about all the Discord history because they would come yeah, through. I knew about that, and Richmond has got a Richmond has a weird. Uh, well, they had Guar, and they they Richmond was more much more arty. It always has been, um, but DC. I was still a little too late to be a minor threat fan or a void or I mean I could appreciate it. Uh, Fugazi, I did like them. Like I was I I've seen them a couple times, but I didn't, you know, I not I didn't not like them or anything, but I just it kind of I'm sorry to say this, it just kind of happened like when I was into the Royal Trucks or something that Fugazi was happening. They or, were almost <laughs> like I felt like they distributed a lot of information by bringing cool bands with them. So they kind of that's true. Shudder to think and all those weird yeah. bands you you wouldn't have known about them. I like them. Yeah, they were we, we really toured, good. We the toured with pavement tour with them. I didn't know that. Yeah, we by toured like, with them. Get your goat or or, or no, later on the major label album. Yeah, like roll down the road to that was a great single. I thought um, they were on Epic and. They were also on Big Cat, our label in uh, England, <laughs> and so we we did like a full tour with the, with those guys. Did old David Berman? He came out from Texas, so does that mean he, did he bring like country music history to to your? No, he likes the Cure. 
I mean, that's his foundations. He's like your hilarious. Yeah, no, he's a cure boy at heart. He was like a half goth, you know, sort of before he got to uh, Virginia. I don't know how he got into the country. I don't know. I don't really like country as much as a lot of people. I do like um, electric country, like the uh, Meat Puppets or uh, the idea of the Eagles, but not actually the Eagles. Like, and I I can kind of play those songs. Well, I don't know why, but like I can I can. People seem to like my semi country songs that are not really country. Um, they're like country rock. I like guess range life or something. Yeah. yeah, and I have more, and I have new ones, and they actually sound some whatever reason. And there's a little like Sterling Morrison in my guitar solos. They're not like country, mm. so like they're, I guess they're also like Velvet Underground fourth style country. So I can do that, but he, yeah, I don't know. He was like the he's kind of the Cure, Battle Surfers, and because that was a big band for us in college pretty much um, based on their live show. And they were so uh, much bigger like than the other b- indie bands yeah. <laughs> in their, the trail they uh, blazed. You know, they were like an alpha style band. Um, <laughs> but he, when David moved to, after school, he moved to Nashville. And I think he just wanted to earn some money. He thought he could just write some country songs and Weird. and people would like it. And he met, that city's like a music industry city. If you go to the right bar, people are involved in it. Yeah, I don't remember like him saying like, you got to hear this uh, like Freddie Fender or, um, see, I don't even really know. Country. I like Hank Williams or something. That's, yeah. that's enough for me um, for country. Yeah. What about you? Do you like country a lot or at least some? I'm, well, it's it's somehow in our bloodstream, or it's like it's buried in our DNA. Well, you know what a record's supposed to sound like, so your hands and your brain mm. kind of conform. Like here comes a drum fill, here comes a guitar lick, yeah. and you just know what it's supposed to sound like because of some car ride you took when you were six, and somebody, you know, your dad was playing mm. this cassette over and over. You just fill in the blanks, you know. Did country your family music. like country? I mean, I I grew up in You're from North Carolina. Carolina. <laughs> yeah, so we we were like a hippie family transplanted from Miami, and I just had a single mom. She, she was like in the workforce. She should get in her perm, hitting the 80s, just like yeah. cruising, getting a good Moving job. Forward. Yeah, nine yeah. to five. She listened to that all the time, you know. Yeah. And uh, Eagles, eight track. You know, she had like four records, Billy Joel yeah, Glass Houses. And so you just absorb it. But uh but then eventually they, they started having the Black Mountain Festival was a big get together kind of thing. And that was like very like that's like bluegrass uh, stuff. Yeah. And then the Merle Fest, I went to that, which was Doc Watson's festival. So I saw like Ralph Stanley and mm-hmm. and a ten of ten people and like uh Tony Rice, like the flat picking masters. Yeah. You still didn't like it. You were just dragged along, yeah. you know. I mean, as a little kid. And then, but then you wake up years later and you're like, oh, this is kind of in my bloodstream. I can't help it. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you sing, you hear the Southern yeah. part of your yeah. life or something. 
one time I was asked to write a, an essay. It was called like, it wasn't called Respect Your Elders, but it was called like uh, Show Some Respect or something. They were like, write, just write something about somebody who you, uh, you want to pay respects to in the, you know, yeah. in the classic past. And so I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do David Gates. So yeah. I wrote this thing on bread, yeah. which, you know, is like- It was a, trailblazing in many ways because bread, bread is about as cool as it's ever been in the last half decade or 10 years. Oh, dude, but people hated it. So it was like, <laughs> at the time, it just seemed like a really good contrarian thing to throw yeah. in people's face or something. But but so I wrote this long essay about bread and um, I think I maybe mentioned- Crooked Rain, and and or maybe halfway through the article, I'm like, it occurred to me that maybe there was somewhat of a conscious turning back to our parents' music. Yeah, on that album for sure. But that was conscious, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, it was supposed to be kind of uh, classic rock, but debased like bad things like the Eagles and. Uh, because our first album was so fall and and it was very uh, scratchy and stuff, you know. It's just like I also like this or anything's game. You can take anything and make it good if if you uh, approach it the right way, I guess, and stuff. So, and I wanted to do something more song based. So, but there's like a Can influence song on there. There's like a Dave Brubeck song. There's like some Neil Young guitar at the end, and but it was more seventies in general that that record was, and it was the initial guitar solos are a little like "All Right Now" by Free or the first song "Silence Kid." It was it sounded more like that before Bryce mixed it, but he like mixed the guitars totally different than I had planned. But then I liked it. He made it sound more sloppy. So that was a template for the thing. It's like, you can like this too. It's cool, you know, or Dinosaur had that. Dinosaur is such a big band for that You're Living All Over Me. It was such a, like, revelation album in, like, many levels. Like, sonically, I don't know how they did it at Wharton Tears, but somehow it sounds murky, but, like, perfect and... um the drums are quiet, but they're loud, and it just, for some reason, that one's lo-fi perfect. And the sound of that, yeah, that melancholy and the classic rock and the shredding guitar, mm-hmm. and it's still punk. So I just, I, I hear that album is like influential and sonically too, you know, not just on like bands like, it took, oh, we're going to make like loud, distorted pop songs. You know, like Graham Parsons had that declaration of like, I'm going to make cosmic American music, which yeah. he never really did. <laughs> yeah, right. But then, but Jay Maskis like said, I'm going to make whatever it's called, like ear bleeding country. Yeah. That is kind of a, a, I mean, Meat Puppets obviously yeah. kicked it off, but like it was kind of a left turn, you know, it's like a bizarre, yeah. and you're totally right that you can hear this birdsy thing kind of yeah. like chiming with the doubled vocals yeah. and it's kind of like soothing. It's like perfect uh, 19 year old like 20 year old music too for you know you're through your adolescence but you're still like a little frustrated and you're 
I mean, his music is a little more like I'm not getting laid, but like you can, you're getting laid by then, but like it's not easy still or something. And <laughs> so you can relate to that uh, album. I don't know. So that, was, that was a massive record for guitar music for me. I just, I feel like it, yeah, it, it like lit Chapel Hill on fire. Like all the small towns, like yeah. it just sort of created like, a type of guy with the kind <laughs> yeah, of like right. with the clothing and the hair length and the way <laughs> yeah, that everybody yeah. thought it was like it was a galvanizing lightning yeah. bolt or something. And and what is it? Our band could be your life like says that it was like marketed to radio, like a major label record or something. Like I think it it SST tried to do that. Yeah, with your living, living all yeah. over me. Like it oh. kind of created a wave. It was like uh it was a strangely ambitious marketing campaign or something. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, I just know it was like all the dudes, like a wide variety of dudes liked it at my college radio and and girls probably too, but I don't know. I didn't know what they liked really back then. I didn't listen to music with them. Yeah. I think they probably liked Dinosaur. Do you record Holy Sons yourself? I started as like a lo-fi militant kid that was like using Walkmans and stuff. Did you ever record on Walkmans? Yeah, I've done that. You can do. Uh, you can also then, then replay your thing and double record. I did. I've done that before. You know, on a boombox or something. Yeah, you could do primitive uh, two-track recording. Totally. I mean, we everybody does that first, and then. I just put out this record that was produced by John and Yellow. He's a really good engineer. So yeah, you know about his stuff him. Sounds yeah, it sounds like classic rocky sounding. Yeah, Kurt Violin, Dinosaur. Right, and like he's done Sonic Youth. That's mainly what I know he does. But he does tons of other stuff. Yeah, his brother invented the Eventide harmonizer in the seventies that Bowie and you know yeah, used. Yeah, yeah. So they have this weird streak of Brooklyn brilliance to them. They're really, really smart guys. Yeah. Um, as an engineer, he's just, uh, I don't think he's ever used a plugin. So he's like a, I mean, he shows up with a huge Tupperware Outboard container of things. like, yeah, LA2A yeah. Teletronics things and, and he's a master at compression. Like you can't hear his compression, but you feel it. It's like he's an old school master. I feel like we're old enough now to to see things from like the Willie Nelson perspective of weathering decades. So there's kind of like this sense of like you're gonna go up some years and you go down. You're gonna go yeah. back up. You're gonna go back down, and then eventually you're just like, "What the fuck is the difference?" You know what I mean? You're gonna stay down everywhere except New York and LA and Chicago, probably. You know, that's just the way it goes. San Francisco. But there's a there's like a grace to accepting that reality. 
Yeah. You know? If you always kind of jammed a Kano, then you never were that high. So I think, uh, at least for me, I mean, I, I was only in the tour bus like once or twice at the end of pavement in America. In Europe, I was much more often in a tour bus, not a very nice one, but you probably were too because they're not as expensive and it's just a way to get around fast that you can't do if you're driving yourself and you sleep in the in the bus and you save money that way when you were moving from like i guess like crooked rain towards bright in the corners so you you were sort of having to maybe accept that this system we're talking about like of like using a big time producer and did you go you go into that like totally willingly or or was that something you were a little uh trepidatious about um well we just kind of stuck with the same people that we made the first one which was slanted enchanted um by ourselves and uh like in a basement studio and would know uh advice so it sounds like rough and then the second the crooked rain i did mostly in in a uh rehearsal room in uh midtown and then uh we did go to this place called baby monster which was on 14th street and matt sweeney had said like there's this place baby monster and it was 50 dollars an hour and you could mix there so we were just planning on mixing it ourselves and it had a Neve board and these things we'd heard about that were really cool. Um, <laughs> Going to make it sound better. And when we got there, there was an engineer there. His name is Bryce Goggin and he, he worked with uh, Chavez and like Elliot Sharp and he, and he kind of just took over because like there was all these, all these things we didn't know what to do with mm. compressors and reverb and and we had recorded it ourselves, just direct into the tape machine. And then he was—he took over and started just mixing it, kind of without even asking. I mean, we were like riding the faders a little bit and saying like, "That's supposed to be." I give him a setup of what the song was beyond the rough tape. And then he was so good, he made it sound like a like a real band, like big and fat bass, and like he re-recorded the drums, like uh, he would, because uh, there was no bottom snare, like recorded for whatever reason, because we didn't know um, how to do it, and so he he just ran the snare sound back into the studio and recorded a snare just sitting there, you know, and uh, so when the snare would hit, the bottom snare would record. He did all this kind of stuff and it was very and he was very quick and like macho about it. And um and I think like he had like a ninety percent success rate or seventy-five. We had to do a couple over and we scrapped a couple songs. But so then that was, you know, basically like ha- having a producer because he, he was a mixer and we just didn't know it before we got there. And then we used him on the Wowie Zowie to mix it, not record it, which, and then also the one you mentioned, Bright in the Corner. So up to that point, we didn't really have a, um, I mean, he was, he did this band called Space Hog, which had a hit called In the Meantime. I don't know if you remember them. Barely. One of them was married to uh, 
Mm. Um, Steven Tyler's beautiful daughter, mm-hmm. Liv Tyler. They were like two English guys from Leeds. And so he was getting a name and then he moved on to work with Fish almost exclusively. Wow. Um, during the drug era too and during all eras. Then we used Nigel. So the time I only used a producer, only time we used one was with Nigel Godrich, who all engineers and studio people um, kind of rightfully uh, are in awe of because he's pretty much the alpha of like new generation producers. And he was interested in pavement. They liked uh, Wowie Zowie. He and like Radiohead um, were fans. And he's like, I have time off and I'd like to do it. And then I was like, well, this guy, and he also did Beck, like uh, Mutations, which he was really proud of. He, he played me some of that and he was totally psyched. He had just done that. And so that's when we used one. And I didn't uh, know what that was going to entail. But he was cool. You know, he was like, you don't, I just want my percentage points. You don't even have to pay me a fee. I'm free and I'm already made a lot of money and I want to work with you guys. <laughs> so we'll just carry this to the end. And, you know, we paid for the studio time, of course, which started to get expensive because he uh, had his own uh, standards. Because we first we started at the Sonic U studio. When we got there, like they also had a, a nice Neve board, but like the faders were upside down. They they went um, down, and we recorded like three days. And Nigel was losing his mind trying to figure this out, and he wasn't getting like he couldn't get the Nigel sound. So he's like, "We have to stop." And <laughs> there was like headphone mixes were dubious at best, and there were some a lot of reasons why we left. But then we went to this place near uh, the new NYU park. It's not Tompkins Square, right? It's the other one. In Washington Square? Yeah, I was there. It was where the Beastie Boys recorded uh, (laughs) Intergalactic and stuff. This is just what I remember. You know, like I wasn't why I wanted to go there. And it was on like the 14th floor of this really nice apartment building. And it was a small room because it's New York, but it was like really fancy. I just don't remember what it's called, but it was super nice. He's like, we're going to do it here. So then, you know, a few thousand dollars later, we had like seven tenths of the album. And then we still had to do overdubs. I'm going off on a tangent. So then we went to England where he lives and we went to Rack where he started. Mm. Rack's a great historical studio um, where Mickey Most owned it and he was a hit maker with uh, hot chocolate and uh, <laughs> he also knew the Yardbirds and Jimmy Page. I mean, he was, wore leather pants still he was, and had a fancy car but would only get like Marks and Spencer sandwiches. Like he had weird, cheap and rich at the same time. And his daughter worked the front desk and she was pretty and he would just sit in the um, lobby and just be like, how you, how you doing boys? Are you winning? You know, he would just... And there was three studios there. We were in the cheaper one. And we finished the songs. We had to get a new drummer for a couple songs. I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah. we had to get... Steve West couldn't play these songs in time that were like needed to be in time. So we got the High Llamas drummer. And I drummed on one song too, but 
that wasn't the one that needed to be in time. That needed to be out of time in the right way. And so, so it was a long, that was like a real like classic rock overproduced right. $100,000 record or whatever. Which Terror Twilight. kind of seems <laughs> to cancel out some of the need for a producer. Because at that point, you just anyone paying that much money and putting yeah. that much effort into something could make... You should be able to make something good. You right. know? <laughs> and, but you could make some deep... Like We made some things that weren't as good as they could have been or choices of songs. And then that was funny too because there was a big argument with the order of the songs on it. Not, no one really cares about this album that much, but like <laughs> at the time, he wanted it and I didn't really mind, but he had a certain order that was with a difficult song first, a little like Radiohead's uh, OK Computer. It was like a longer, challenging song that would set, mm. set the tempo. And like Scott in our band and the other ones, they didn't, not only did they not like that song, they barely played on it and like wanted this other like easier song first, like the hit song or whatever. And so Nigel was just like, I'm done with this, you know, like this is bullshit and this is the wrong move. We made a stoner album and now it's like you're going halfway, which he's, he's right probably. But it didn't take away from the fact that the song he wanted first was like not as good as it should have been either though, um, in my mind. You had a couple singles on that. I mean, yeah, I like spit was... on a stranger, and there were some. I mean, it came out all right, but that's a long way of answering your uh, producer story. For some reason, I think of that as like a Portland, Oregon record because I had just maybe moved here. Yeah, we after rehearsed here out. for a second at Larry's old studio. The uh, we tried to the rehearse. old jackpot. Yeah, we started rehearsing there. And it just didn't sound that good. He was taping it too. And so there was maybe a mine that we could record there, but it didn't have a nice sound. I think of that old studio as like a sort of a lo-fi studio that yeah. him and Elliot Smith set up or something. But he had, again, like a fancy board. They bought, Elliot Smith bought like this huge, I remember the day it came, I think it was like a quad eight or so, had a name like that, but they're like, it's coming today. We need help moving it into the studio. You know, we need some manpower. It's like 97? Or? Yeah, and it came and it was like, came in a truck. It was like weighed two tons and it was too big for their room. Like they just didn't do their due diligence. It wouldn't fit even through the door. You know, they, they could put it in the studio, but not in the console room. So Elliot Smith was always like a, a gearhead, essentially. He was he was excited to step up into that I world. I think so. I think he was probably like a lot of people. He had a bunch of money and he didn't know what to spend it on. So, you know, if he was smart, he bought like Martin guitars and U87s. And when he wasn't smart, he was buying other stuff, you know, that he shouldn't have been buying. But, you know, I think he was just like, I yeah, I want to get George Martin's compressor or whatever and a Fairchild compressor and a U87 and great stuff which I I think that's a good way to spend your money. I mean at least it's always going to be there if even if you don't know how to use it the obvious thing that if you don't know how to use good stuff it's not going to matter but that's why I never buy good stuff. <laughs> 
So wh- when did you first move to New York? Is that after college? 1990, I moved there. I graduated in 88. And yeah, I moved. I lived in Jersey City, though, at first, because uh, Bob Nastanovich from, from Richmond, Virginia, was the first of our like kind to move up there. And he was braver and willing to work any job. So he worked at like UPS in the shipping. He eventually drove a bus. He wasn't, because uh, it's, you know, it's hard to get a job in New York uh, even then. I mean, I guess it's not that hard, but it seemed hard. It's not hard to get any job. But Where was Mark from? Mark's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He was already there. He he moved. He moved in the '80s, and he he, he was he was in the Dust Devils. Do you remember them? Barely. They were like the kings of the scene. Seriously. Yeah, they're two uh, leaders, Michael and Jackie. Um, she was from Australia, and he's from England. And they were always at Max Fish, and they loved the fall, and they loved unrest, and. They were a band of fans. They weren't uptight, like, we're so cool, we're in a band, you know? They were in the front when Jesus Lizard came every time, or they were, when Laughing Hyenas played, they were in the front row, just like being fans. They were the first people that were nice to us when Pavement started. They said they liked Pavement, whereas there was more of a scum rock um, contingent, which people turned out to be nice, but they didn't seem like they were if it was like cop shoot cop or the unsane and uh were you did you at the time were you like uh we're up against this uh context where like we're not going to be like the tough guys or whatever yeah yeah they and but we were you know not we were more like hoboken types i guess cuz we also lived in hoboken you know we weren't like Richard Kern styled. <laughs> no, I like him and stuff, but like you weren't like time, the, the Swans was, is what you were. Yeah, thinking not of. the Swans yeah. and Live Skull and this like New York uh, noise thing. But it turned out that there was a thing happening that we were a part of that we didn't really know, which was like Sebado starting and Love Child and like. Uh, mm, there was just you know there were more nerds out there. Than we knew. Yeah. Um, and then I guess like Super Chunk and Teenage Fan Club, they were unmatted. I mean, they were softer and like nice people yeah. first. But, so you're uh, saying like the Westing stuff or the or whatever, I guess you yeah. like Slay Tracks or something? Yeah. So that stuff you, you had made on a four track, right? No, that was in the Gary's place too. Oh, wow. The, yeah. But that was more a Drag City era thing. So that, they heard our single. They were just getting started. These guys, Dan and Dan, one, Dan's not so busy with the company anymore. And they said, we're starting this label. And we got the Royal Trucks. They're going to be our first thing. And we had heard that first Royal Trucks album, which is amazing and uh, really weird. And Royal Trucks were part of New York scene a little bit because Neil was in P- Pussy Galore and um, Which Pussy was, Galore was a that big... That wasn't like DC or something? or He was originally, but they moved to New York. And so Pussy Galore was kind of like a king of the scene band, like deconstructed scum rock band also. 
but royal trucks were so weird and uh so we said like yeah i mean you've got a good start we like the royal trucks you guys are cool they kind of knew touch and go people and they they were just had a chicago um honesty thing going on <laughs> yeah like we're gonna pay, and we're not. We're not fly by night because there were these labels that wanted to sign. Pay. There was one called Circuit, which you have to look up. But you, so you like released that early stuff ourselves in a climate that wasn't particularly maybe ready to celebrate it. But then you, at some point, you woke up and you had all these peers like that were rising up, making similarly like. Brainy, weird yeah. shit. King too. Kong, band King Kong. There was just singles, you know. And then there was like fanzine acceptance of the band. There was still fanzine culture. Seemed obviously with computers. There's not as much fanzine. There's internet fanzine, but it it's somehow I don't know. It's it doesn't feel this. It might feel the same to a twenty year old as it did to us. But there was more negative reviews for one thing. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> There's more, more, uh, yeah, just meanness, pettiness, and like, and sometimes calling things out for what they were. But uh, <laughs> were you ever like attacked? Uh, not so much. I mean, we had a pretty good go of it. According to Matador, the 90s are like in now. And the kids want to know about the nineties. That's like so I can't believe that's true really any more than uh, Well, I think they want little kids to be making it though. The nineties yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think too. Yeah. They have like this guy car seat headrest and he's into the nineties and he's and Kurt. It's like the kids are like getting encouraged to make Either the same mistakes that everybody already made, <laughs> or like way worse mistakes that we had already learned from. Yeah. You know, like there's some real dumb cock rocking elements and just idiotic lowbrow yeah. things because everything's a melange. Now you can just pick, you know, yeah, I'll take a can... little bit of, uh, you know, Karma Chameleon. Yeah. I love that harmonica sound. <laughs> it's like such a bizarre thing to do, but some kid out there now is just like, "Oh, it's completely legitimate." Yeah, right. You know, that would have been a battle line cross <laughs> back then. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn, and you've been listening to Emil Amos and Stephen Malkmus on the TalkHouse Music Podcast. Subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes for upcoming episodes like Craig Finn of The Hold Steady with Sid Butler of French Kiss Records, La Savi Favre, and Late Night with Seth Meyers' 8G Band. Today's episode is recorded by Emil Amos and mixed by Mark Yoshizumi. Till next time. Music seems crazy, band start up. Each and every day I saw another one just the other day A special